0: Good morning, Grace City, Portland. Thank you for joining us for our Sunday morning online service once again. Um, If you are jumping in at some point midweek, glad you are here to catch up. But uh, this is our Sunday morning online service and possibly one of our last ones. We have one more sidewalk service scheduled. Then after that, we are going to begin meeting in person starting the first Sunday of October, which I'm very, very excited for I hope you are as well. Of course, we will have many details to come in the next couple of weeks leading up in terms of what that's going to look like and just just making sure we're doing it well, that we're being wise um, and that we're, we're being responsible. Um, but I'm so, so excited to, uh, to, to begin meeting together again in person on Sunday mornings. Anyway, church, I have a message that I'm very excited to share with you this morning. So let's go ahead and get right to it, I'm in the book of 2 Kings, and I want to talk to you uh, this morning about the greatness of our God. I think we can all agree that 2020 has been a, a slightly unusual year. There's been a few weird things that have happened, and personally, I, I realized probably a few weeks ago that I think the best word or, or sort of phrase to describe how I've been feeling is cognitive dissonance Um, just this like surreal kind of disconnect between what I know what I believe what I in my heart of hearts believe to be true about God and yet I look around and I'm just it's like the world is on fire I'm literally our state is on fire Um, and it's I mean it's tragic it's heartbreaking it's enough to to, yeah, it's depressing is what it is. And the, 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 the turmoil that our city's been going through, I mean, it's kind of cool to be on the news uh, and to hear like Joe Rogan talk about Portland and, and all these different things, um, but it's actually not super cool because th- the world is looking at Portland. I mean, I'm getting emails and, and, and direct messages from like, like continents all around the world. Asking me, how am I doing? Is my family okay? Portland's like on the news every night and it's not looking good for you. Not a great reason to be in the spotlight. Needless to say, um, I believe that our God is faithful. Every morning that I get up and I spend a moment in prayer and I open the scriptures, I'm reminded of a God who loves us, who is sovereign, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, who is not distant, who is not disconnected, who's not forgotten us, but who's with us, who's interested, who's engaged, and who is great, who is powerful. And yet, again, we look around, and we're like, but where is he? Where is this greatness that, ...that I read about. And so I want to talk to you this morning about the greatness of our God. And I want to, I want to share some, some things out of a story that's been recorded for us in the book of 2 Kings. This is, I, I, think, I feel like I say this quite often, but this is absolutely one of my favorite events recorded in Scripture... ...that's, that's been given to us in a way of encouragement. And it's, it's a story about a man, a prophet named Elisha and just to set the story up quickly um, there's quite a bit to it but where where we're going to jump in at this at this point in the story is um, God's people Israel have been um, at war with with several different um, extremely hostile nations and at this point in history it's Syria. Syria has been warring uh, with Israel for some time and Every time the king of Syria is planning to, uh, to invade or, or, or some sort of raid in Israel, somehow it would seem that the, like Israel's getting some kind of inside information. They're able to elude the Syrian army just before the attack, every time. And so the king is convinced, the Syrian king is convinced that he has a, a mole in, in his ranks. And, So he's asking all of his officials and administrators, who's the the spy? Who's giving away our plans? And eventually someone uh, says to the king, "Uh, no, that's not it. He says what's happening is God's people have a prophet living among them named Elisha. And apparently this guy hears from God and God keeps warning Elisha to warn Israel every time we're about to attack and that's how he's able to uh, that's how Israel is able to escape all of our raids and so the king of Syria says fine we need to find out where he is and, and this is where we jump in the story it says in 2nd Kings chapter 6 starting in verse 13 the king of Syria says go and see where this man is, where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told to him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So the king of Syria sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, so when the servant, this was a man named Gehazi, who is the servant of the man of God, who is Elisha, just to get all of our characters right. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, master, what shall we do? And Elisha, the man of God, said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. We'll stop there for now. It's an epic story. Syrian king sends this great army of horses and chariots to surround Dothan and to take out Elisha. Of course Elisha's servant Gehazi, the young man, gets up early in the morning, goes out he sees the army surrounding the city. Naturally he panics, he goes to his master Elisha and he says, Alas master, what shall we do? And Elisha's not, he's not phased. He says, Behold greater are those who are with us than those who are against us. Greater is the army of God than the army you can see with your two eyes. Of course, Gehazi's probably thinking, <coughs> Master, um, don't know what army you're talking about. All I can see are actual horses and actual chariots surrounding, surrounding the city getting ready to destroy us. So Elisha prays and he says, Lord, won't you open the eyes of my young servant that he may see and sure enough Gehazi's eyes are opened and it says that he can see the entire city surrounded by an even greater army of horses and chariots of fire God's army the greatness of God now here's Here's what we need to understand right up front. And you might be thinking, well, that's an epic story. I've actually read that one myself. Love it. Um, and, and the book of First and Second Kings are actually packed full of stories all about Elijah and then Elisha and, and just these incredible men of God who have these, like, unreal relationships with God. And, and they, they, they were used by God to, to, to protect people, to, to heal people, to, you know do miracles, and and this is all happening right now. But you might be thinking, okay, but does this apply to me? Here's what's cool. Um, At 1 John 4 4, the writer John says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he ...who is in the world. It's like he's lifting the word straight out of the story in 2 Kings. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And the point is that in Jesus Christ... ...all of the experiences recorded for our encouragement... ...in the ancient times, uh, in the days of the prophets... The, the life that they experienced, the extraordinary sort of uh, uh, relationship that they had with God is available to everyone now in Christ. And this is part of the, um, the, the promise that was made uh, through the prophet Joel when he said the day will come when I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and everyone will experience This sort of life, this sort of greatness of God, not just working around them, but even working inside of them. And this is as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who is living in the wake of God's great victory for the world as he overcame evil and even death on the cross, we can now be filled with the very spirit of God himself so the greater ones, not just around us, Living inside of us. So we should be experiencing the greatness of God like this. Now you might be thinking, great, that sounds fantastic. But explain to me how God is great when my house is just burned down. Explain to me great how when our city is literally on fire. Great how when I'm not even sure how I'm going to pay my rent next month. Great how when my wife is battling cancer. Great how when my child is wanting to end his own life. Great how when it feels like there's no justice anywhere to be found. Great how when 2020 has been arguably one of the worst years of my life. Great how when loved ones are dying alone. Great how when I can hardly even breathe outside. How is God great in 2020? How can I, in my life, in all of my challenges, and all of my heartache, and all of my disappointment how can I experience the greatness of God in my life now that's that's a fair question that is a fair question and this is what I want to talk about because I'm asking myself the same question and I'm longing to experience this great God for myself in my life despite the insanity of 2020 because we've still got a few months left in this year I'm looking to see this great God at work in my life but how does this work how do I appropriate the greatness of God in my life and I want to share just very, three very simple quick points number one it begins with perspective it begins with perspective we are we're visual creatures we're experiential beings Um, We were made with eyes and, and four other senses, and so we're right to want to experience something of God in our lives in more than just some sort of abstract way, more than just an idea, more than just ink on paper. We want to see the greatness of God. Oftentimes, Jesus would say things like, for those who have eyes to see, or ears to hear, let them see, let them hear. And so he would appeal to our desire to to see or to hear what he was trying to say or or demonstrate for us, but it was a different kind of seeing, it was a different kind of hearing, but it was a perspective nonetheless. And so the first point that I would want to highlight from, from the story of Elijah and these chariots of fire is that there was a perspective there. Elisha saw something that his young servant, Gehazi, did not until Elijah prayed and God opened his eyes. And this is important because sometimes I think we can make the mistake of thinking that, of thinking that God's, God could be great, but we're waiting on His greatness to like somehow kick in or take effect. Um, sometimes we're facing a challenge in life. Something's gone terribly wrong or we're hoping it might go right. And so we begin to pray or or we start to look for signs of God's presence in our lives. And maybe we even pray, we cross our fingers and we we hope and and, and wish that God will come through for me in this particular situation. Only we're not sure. We're, it's almost like we're holding our breath, just hoping that God doesn't airball it, or that he doesn't fumble it, or he doesn't somehow. Uh, show up late or, or or fail to be great in a moment. And I would make the point that that's not quite right because God is great. We don't need to make him great. We don't need to wish for him to be great. What we need more than anything is open eyes. What we need to understand, and this is challenging, this is challenging, but what we need to understand is that God is great and God is working all the time, particularly in the moments during life, during our lives, when it would seem as if he is nowhere to be found because God specializes in showing up in the darkness. He's the God who seems to somehow For some reason, take delight in those resurrection moments of life where it seems like life is ended, like the game is over, like hope is lost, and then all of a sudden, God is there in a moment. But he was never far off. He was never not to be found. He was always there, not failing to be great, but waiting for us to... Open our eyes, waiting for us to have the perspective that, that it takes to realize that God isn't ever not great. We don't, he doesn't need us to make him great again. He's not waiting for us to pray just a little bit harder. God is the greater one. And we need to ask God to open the eyes of our hearts. That we would begin to pray as if the greater one is at work all around us. That the greater one is not only faithful, but even able to bring about some redemption in broken, painful, hurting, impossible circumstances of our life. That it's God who shows up in the ashes. It's God who, whose light shines out of darkness. It's God who speaks to what would otherwise be lifeless and says, rise, rise up and experience new life." This is the, the essence of our God. He enters into the broke places because it's there that his greatness is most exemplified. So again... Um, I think to take kind of the obvious point from the story. God was present and his greatness was very real. But the young man who was a bit panicked, I think you could probably say, he needed his eyes open. And so Elisha prayed for him. And God did open his eyes and he saw that the greater one was actually all around them. That's the first point perspective. We need perspective. And I would even encourage us to, um, if you're like, look at that, that doesn't help me at all, try asking God to give you eyes to see. Um, I, one of my favorite prayers in the entire New Testament is, is a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. Let me read it to you. He says in uh, Ephesus chapter one, I pray uh, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. He prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be opened. That they would know the hope that they have, the, the riches that they have, and the power that is available to them. The same power that was at work when God raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us now god help us open our eyes second point we need people um i've heard it said that people are the silver conduit in 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 the life of god um you know if you know anything about electricity there's certain uh types of metal that that act as as better conduits than other conductors than other uh Gold is right up there. Copper is a little bit better. But the best sort of uh, conductor for electricity is silver. People are the silver of God. Um, notice in the story, God didn't just open up Gehazi's eyes because Gehazi wished him to. Elisha prayed for Gehazi, and the young man's eyes were then opened. And, of course, this is all throughout Scripture God seems to delight in partnering with people uh, to heal people, partnering with people to free people, partnering with people to, to, to work in others' lives. And I honestly, I don't, I'm not exactly sure why God is like this, although I would say, as a father, I, I have my suspicions. I love seeing my children interact in a way where they're they're helping each other there's like virtually nothing else on this planet that delights me more than seeing my kids bless each other and i can of course do it myself anytime one of my kids needs help honestly uh the easiest thing to do would just be to like like insert myself take care of it but man teaching my kids how to serve each other how to bless one another. And then even if if I'm the one sort of providing the means, uh, providing the resources, I still want to give my children the opportunity to bless one another. We need people in our lives that can pray for us. When I'm failing to see the greatness of God in or around my life, and for the life of me, I just cannot seem to, 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 to gain the perspective I desire, God will send someone in my life to pray for me. Who do you have in your life that can pray for you when, you've got, when you don't have the wherewithal to pray for yourself? Who do you have in your life that you can pray for who perhaps doesn't even know how to pray for themselves, perhaps doesn't even believe in God enough to be able to pray for themselves? I would encourage all of us to think about who is in my life that God has placed there in order for me to either encourage or be encouraged by or, or perhaps be mutually in, in, to be in a, a mutual encouragement. Because God doesn't just arbitrarily put people in our lives. He's, God likes to bring people along at just the right time he likes to 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 orchestrate the universe that every it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling to think about how i met my wife and how we ended up connecting at the church in london and and, and all of the I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling to even think about how life came into existence in the first place God is this like genius engineer orchestrating a billion different moving parts so that life would be possible and that we would come into each other's lives. And so this is what God does. Sometimes I wonder, though, are we recognizing how God has brought people into our lives, people that he he would love to partner with us, in order to bless that we would be his silver conductors, people that we would lay our hands on one another and ask God, open my brother's eyes, heal my sister, set my brother or sister free, show yourself to be faithful, to be the greater one in this person's life and be that that man or woman of God who can pray for another Perspective, people, and um, sorry, I could not think of a third P for this one, but I'm just simply going to say surrender. Surrender. You know, one of my favorite, um, the reason why this story is one of my favorite stories in the Bible is because uh, the story, it reminds me of every time I come across it, and um, of course, it's, it's the movie, Chariots of Fire, 1981, arguably one of the best films of a generation, won several Academy Awards. Um, and it's an incredible movie, mainly because it's just an incredible story. If you've not seen the movie, um, it's the story of Eric Little, who was a, a, a Scottish Olympic runner. And uh, he he ran in the 1924 Paris Summer Olympics. He uh, he was supposed to run the 400. Sorry, he was supposed to run the 100 meter that summer, which was his sort of his forte, his the race that he was favored to win. Um, but as it turns out, when they finally released the schedule, uh, that particular race fell on a Sunday. Eric Little was. Uh, an incredible Christian, a devout believer in Jesus. And it was his faith, it was his deep conviction that Sunday was the day that he, he rested, that he, he spent time drawing near to Jesus. It was the day that he went to church with his family. And so, I mean, can you believe the conviction? Because of his love for Jesus, he decided not to run the 100-meter In the Olympics that summer instead he ran the 400 meter which was his weaker race um, but it happened to fall on a weekday July 11th 1924 in Paris he not only won the gold medal for the 400 meter but he set a new world record that summer Um, he tells the story later on that um, just before the race one of his teammates handed him a little handwritten note Um, he didn't read it until much later after the race that day but the note said in the old book it says he that honors me I will honor wishing you the best of success always he that honors me I will honor that's first Samuel chapter 2 verse 30 he who honors me, I will honor. And that pretty much sums up the life of Eric Little. This was a man who didn't just run for his own glory, for his own ambition, or his own ego, or his own agenda, but he ran because he was a man who loved the Lord. And he ran to honor God. For the same reason, he chose not to run the 100 meter on a Sunday. He ran and won the 400 meter on a weekday because of his love for God. He was a man who understood what it meant to surrender everything in honor of the one who had already surrendered everything for him, Jesus, who had laid down his life for him. And that's only half the story. Less than a year later... Eric Little ended up moving uh, to China or back to China. He was born to Scottish missionary parents in China. And less than a year later, 1925, he walked away from the gold medal. He walked away from from virtually an unlimited number of opportunities before him to return to China where he spent the rest of his life as a Christian missionary to the people, people of China. Um, he chose to run a different race. He, he was truly a man surrendered to the will of God. Twenty years later, he ended up dying just in the middle of World War II. He ended up dying at a Japanese civilian internment camp. And one of his friends and, and fellow missionaries were there at his bedside. Um, just before he died to record his last words. And it was said that he, he uttered these words just before he breathed his last breath. And he said, total surrender, total surrender. He was speaking of the life that he had lived, that, that he was, as he was reflecting back on his love for Jesus and the life that he had lived as a missionary in China, it was a life of total surrender. If we want to experience the greatness of God in our lives, God would call us to totally and radically surrender our lives into his hands. He would call us to surrender our coping mechanisms, our our great propensity for, for grasping for control, our, our tendency to give in to, to fear or temptation or um, the various things that the world might offer us in way of, of, of satisfaction or, or, or comfort. God would call us to surrender our lives, to run his race. And Eric Little, although he ran to honor God, he chose to to surrender the, the, the Sunday morning that he might run a different race, the race that God had set before him. Even though he won a gold medal running a foot race, he even laid that down and all of the opportunities, the money and the wealth and the fame to run even yet another race in China. It's an incredible story. Of radical surrender. And I'm convinced that the story hasn't changed, not in the slightest, in the same way that Jesus ran the race set before him, in the same way the Apostle Paul said, I have run the race. I've run in such a way that I might win the prize. He surrendered everything, and it's there he began to experience the greatness of God. Church family, We have been living in an unprecedented season. I'm 45 years old, still a relatively young man. I've got a few more things to see yet in this life. But I tell you, in my 40 plus years of life, I've never quite had a year like 2020. It's and of course, all the talk is, will we ever go back? Will we ever experience life as we knew it before? And only God knows. But what I know for sure is that God hasn't changed. The God who was great for Elijah and who surrounded him and that city with chariots of fire and who protected him when he needed to experience the greatness of God is the same God who is the greater one living in us today. And he wants to show himself great. He wants to open his eyes. He wants to bring people into our lives that we might be conduits of his greatness for others. He is the same God who calls us to lay our lives down and to trust him in a way that is so incredibly radical that it might even feel like we are losing our lives, that we might gain our lives in Jesus Christ. It is a life of radical surrender. This is where we experience the greatness of God. This is how God is is great in our lives. But you know there's one more little part to the story. Why do we want to experience the greatness of God? There's a lot of talk about greatness. Everyone has different ideas about what's actually great. What's a greater nation? What's a greater government? What's a greater uh, political system? What's a greater vision for society? And um, some people are willing to literally take up arms and fight for it. Um, Some people are willing to get in shouting matches over it. Um, it's, It's a big deal. But it begs the question, greatness to what end? Greatness... Why? We talk about the how, but let's say we do begin to experience something of God's greatness in our lives. Greatness to what end? For whose benefit? Greatness, why? We continue reading the story of Elisha, these chariots of fire. The, uh, the Syrian army actually of course, closes in. And um, Elisha prays one more time. prays a couple more times, but he prays again and he says, God, won't you close the eyes? Won't you blind the eyes of the Syrian army? And this this, uh, really bizarre series of, of, of sort of interactions follows. And Elisha is somehow able to, he does this weird Jedi thing. He says, this is not the city you're looking for. This is not... I am not the man you are looking for. And he ends up leading the entire Syrian army that came to destroy the city and take his life all the way to another part of the country. And then he says, God, won't you open their eyes again? And they, they open their eyes and they realize where they are. And you could tell in a moment they're, they're worried that they're going to be taken over. And the king of Israel, he turns to Elijah and he says, shall we... Shall we? Shall we go ahead and destroy them now that we've got them right where we want them? Now that our God has been shown to be the greater one, shall we go ahead and destroy them? And Elisha says, no, don't do that. He says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So it says the king of Israel prepared for them a great feast And when they had eaten and drinken, he sent them away and they went back to their master, the king of Syria. (sighs) What a bizarre twist. What an ending to the story. This is what the greatness of God is for. Not just so that we can wave the gold medal in our enemy's face. Not just so that we can say, ha ha, we won. Our guy won. We conquered. We're better. We were right. No. The greatness of God is so that God's people can better serve their enemies. So that those who trust in God and experience God's greatness for themselves might be positioned to bless those who would otherwise want to destroy us. This is, by the way, the Sermon on the Mount. This is why God shows himself to be the greater one. Not so that His kids can rub it in the face of their enemies, but so that we can turn around and bless those who would otherwise want to curse us. This is why we need to see the greatness of God in our lives, not just so that we can experience something better than what 2020 has been so far, although that would be nice, but let's face it, if God wanted to, he could just take us home right now. If God really wanted to just give us some comfort or some relief, he could say, right, I'll just, well, let's just, let's just end your life. Well, I'll take you to heaven. We'll just, you know, I'll just take you all right now. But apparently God is not done on planet earth any more than he's done with 2020. God wants to show himself great in and through the people of God so that the people of God could lay down their gold medal and go serve those who've never even heard the name of Jesus yet. So the people of God wouldn't wave their gold medal in in the face of their enemies, but that we might prepare a feast before them. Think Think about the people that you believe are like ruining the world right now. The greatness of God isn't merely to crush his enemies. Although someday the king will return and there will be a final reckoning. There will be a day of judgment. And that's a different sermon. That is a different message. In this story, God's greatness is displayed so that God's people can be great servants in the name of the great king. That's why. That's why we need our eyes to be opened. That's why we need to be people engaged with those around us that we might be conduits of God's greatness, conduits of God's grace, conduits of God's love. And that's why God calls us to radical surrender, that we might experience his greatness for ourselves, that we might be blessed in the presence of the greater one, and that we might be a blessing to those around us including our enemies, including those who would otherwise be happy to see us destroyed. I think that's more than enough. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you that you are the greater one. Lord Jesus, you are the greater one who came and overcame the world you overcame sin, you overcame death, and now you have poured out your spirit to be the greater one who lives inside of us. Holy Spirit, won't you come and open the eyes of our hearts that we too might look around and even in the midst of, 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 of imminent uh, pain, looming disaster, instability, brokenness, pain, and disappointment. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold the greater one. You are the greater one. Open the eyes of our hearts that we would have hope, that we would would know that we are rich in Jesus and that the same power that was at work the day that Jesus conquered death It's available to us in our difficult situations, in the dying circumstances of our lives, that we would experience your greatness in our lives. And Lord, I pray that as we surrender to you and experience more of your greatness, Lord, that we would be conduits of your life in the world, Lord, that we would prepare a feast for our enemies that our enemies might come home and join the family and also know something of your your greatness, of your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys. I hope that was an encouragement to you. I will see you soon enough. Love you.